0: For our visitors or those who've not been able to be with us over the course of this month, as I mentioned earlier, we are at the end, the tail end of our Reformation month. Uh, In just a couple of days from now, it will have been 500 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church and began uh, a reformation that has lasted throughout these years. And uh, if uh, you are visiting with us, then you will not be familiar with this little paradigm on the uh, PowerPoint up the front. And it will be the last time you see it this year. So if you haven't paid attention, now's the time to get a handle on this. We've called this the solar system, not the solar system up there, but the solar system as it relates to the five solars of the Reformation. And it begins with the foundation, which is Sola Scriptura, our first week this month which means scripture alone. And in that, we learned that it is the foundation. The written word of God is what they stood upon. And then our first pillar, which is largely covered by the flowers, if you're on this side, uh, is sola gracia, which is by grace alone. The first pillar, by God's grace, the free gift of God. And then Lucas took us through sola fide in our third week together, which is faith alone. And then lastly, or last week, I should say, we looked at solo Christo, which is Christ alone. And these three pillars form the aspects of salvation built upon the scripture uh, that uh, the reformers held so dearly to. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then finally, we have... Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, the covering, the aim and the purpose, all of this is about the glory of God alone. And so from start to finish, it is about God and it's about his glory. And uh, we have arrived today at the final installment of our Reformation month. And I'm not sure about your perspective, but for me it has been a rich time of teaching and learning and fellowship around these five solas. And I hope, my prayer is that by now, if you've been with us, whether in person or on the internet, via Facebook or live stream, that you now have a new appreciation for those men and women of yesteryear who opposed the religion of the day and ushered in the Protestant Reformation as we know it. And so this morning, without any further ado, I want to preach a message entitled, Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, the chief aim of the Reformation. Let's pray. Our Father, I bow before you now with a subject that is so weighty that there is no possible way that any man in this world could do it justice. And so I am already uh, under that great weight and burden But I also know that you are able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask and think. And so I'm asking that you would use this broken, fragile vessel that is in and of itself unable to perform anything of spiritual worth in the life of anybody else. But that you would use me to be able to convey the truth to some degree of this matter of the glory of God alone. Uh, I am uh, under such great burden by this topic because for many of us, the glory of God is not even a concern for us. And yet, we read in history of men and women who died because they were so consumed with a passion for your glory. Lord, revive us. Help us to see again, afresh. The truth of this subject. Thank you for what you've revealed to me and the privacy of my study and time with you. And I pray that some of that that is presented today would help these, my brothers and sisters, to regain an understanding, or perhaps for the first time, gain an understanding of what the glory of God means. So help us now, we pray, as we look at this grand subject. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to jump right in because there is so much to say and so little time. And as I said last week, I'm going to say again today that I must preach this message. It is both a burden and a responsibility and a blessing. And if you all leave, I'm still going to preach it because it's got to come out because it is burning within me. I know what Jeremiah meant when he said that your word was like a fire in my bones Uh, That's how I feel this morning. And so uh, that fire has to come out. And so it's coming out whether you stay or you don't. But either way, I've got to preach it. So hopefully you'll stay for the majority of it anyway. Let's begin with the first point, which is simply this defining the glory of God. Defining the glory of God. In seeking to define the glory of God, we face, in my opinion, two major problems. The first is that we are finite human beings who cannot comprehend God. That's a major problem. Secondly, the other problem that exists is even if it were possible for us to comprehend God and the full measure of his glory, we would be hindered by our human language that could never do him justice. So, we are greatly hindered this morning because, first of all, we cannot comprehend God in His fullness. And then, even if we could, we couldn't describe Him with the language that would do Him justice. In other words, I'm saying we're hindered in defining God and His glory by our own lack of understanding and our inadequate expression of such. In fact, it was John Wesley, as I was studying, that said, Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man. And then I will show you a man that can comprehend God. That I thought was good. Bring me a worm that can comprehend man. Then I will bring you a man that can comprehend God. We are but worms. We are but dust and ashes. However, despite our inability to comprehend the full weight of God's glory, I'm going to do my best to convey the truth that is revealed in the pages of Scripture to help us upon this journey. So when we speak of the glory of God, we are referring to the infinite worth of God made manifest. When we speak of the glory of God, we are referring to the infinite worth of God made manifest. One commentator defined God's glory as the beauty of his spirit. He continued, it is not an aesthetic beauty or a material beauty, but it is the beauty that emanates from his character from all that he is. John Piper suggests that we might define God's glory as the beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. The late Jerry Bridges, some of you may have read his works. He wrote, the glory of God is the sum of all his infinite excellence and his praiseworthiness set forth in display. To glorify God is first of all to respond properly to this display by ascribing to him the honor and adoration due him because of his excellence. We call this worship. In other words, for us this morning, to glorify God is to honour him for who he really is. It is to give the right opinion of him. Now, in referring to God's glory, we need to understand that there are two aspects to this discussion that we really need to get a handle on. The first I have called God's absolute glory. The second, God's attributed glory. To help us, God's absolute glory and God's attributed glory. We must understand these if we're going to understand what the Bible tells us about God's glory. So first of all, God's absolute glory. This refers to his infinite worth. Despite any acknowledgement on the part of his creation... In other words, God is glorious, spectacular, beautiful, holy, majestic, radiant, and of supreme value. And this objective truth requires no validation by anyone other than God himself. Jonathan Edwards, who wrote a great deal about the glory of God, said it is evident by both scripture and reason that God is infinitely, eternally, unchangeably and independently glorious and happy that he cannot be profited by or receive anything from the creature. What Jonathan Edwards was saying is that God doesn't need us. He is all glorious by himself. Thomas Watson, who was a late reformer and a Puritan and a preacher, described God's absolute glory this way. He said, God has no need of our services. He is infinitely blessed in reflecting upon the splendor of his own infinite being. We cannot add the least cubit to his essential or absolute glory. God is absolutely glorious whether or not you are prepared to acknowledge it. Let me say this to us too. Lest we think that we want to see God's absolute glory. If God's absolute glory were to enter this place right at this moment, we would all die. Die. And I want to show you this by turning to Exodus 33, if you would please. Exodus chapter 33. As an introduction to this matter of the glory of God, it took me a long time to get past this text in my study because, boy, it is so rich. So rich. Exodus 33. And unfortunately, due to time, we have to pick it up partway through the account here in verse 17. Of Exodus chapter 33, the second book of the Bible. In verse 17 and following we read. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favour in my sight and I know you by name. Oh, what a great verse. But I can't stop there. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And I say again, if we were to see the glory of God, the absolute essential glory of God, without God's covering in the cleft of the rock as he did for Moses, we would die. So glorious is our God. Secondly, I would like you to see God's attributed glory. Here we refer to his calling upon all of creation to adore and to venerate and to worship and to honor and to exalt and to esteem and to reverence him. This is the privilege And the chief aim of man to attribute the glory that is due to God. Some of you will be familiar with what is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This was written in 1646 and 1647. Simply put, a catechism is a doctrinal manual, often written in the form of questions and answers. There are many of them throughout the history of the church. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism was written specifically to educate children and others of what is called weaker capacity in the reformed teachings of the faith. By the way, let me say this to you. Uh, If the children of that day could understand the catechism, we have lost some serious education today. This catechism, though, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, contains 107 questions and answers that every Christian should read and know. Look it up, read it, it's available online, it'll encourage your heart. The very first question and answer in this Westminster Shorter Catechism is of particular concern for us today. The question is this, question one, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him Forever. All of creation, dear friends, is called to give God glory. It is both the supreme privilege and responsibility of every single person. And to back up this truth, I'd have you turn again in your Bibles to Psalm, if you would, the book of Psalms, chapter 29. Psalm chapter 29, beginning in verse 1 and reading through to the end of verse 2, here we have God's attributed glory, ascribed glory, we might say. In verse 1, he says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Turn with me to another portion in Psalm 96. And I tried very hard to uh, pick out some verses to keep our time to a minimal, minimum time here, but I could not. So we're reading Psalm 96, if you would please follow along. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He shall judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In a crescendo of praise, the Apostle Paul says, To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honour forever and ever. Amen. And so we see God's absolute glory. We see God's attributed glory. But I want you to see one more thing before we move to our next set of points I just want to mention the glory of God and the reformers. This is Reformation month. How did they view God's glory? What was their concern regarding God's glory? Now, it's important to note, and I may not have said this throughout the month, but the five solas that we are looking at and have looked at was not an organized paradigm at the time of the Reformation. It happened since then. But the reformers believed every facet of that diagram and they died for it. Each of our four preceding solas protect the glory of God against all forms of human conceit. Let me show you how. Sola Scriptura, the scripture alone. It protects the glory of God in that it exalts his word over all forms of ecclesiastical tradition and ceremonialism. Sola Gracia, number two, protects the glory of God in that it exalts his work of salvation as a free gift and opposes man's efforts in every single way. Sola Fide, thirdly, protects the glory of God in that it declares that a man is to be justified by faith alone apart from all works and deeds of the flesh. And then fourthly, last week, solo Christo protects the glory of God in that it declares that Christ alone is the means of salvation. No pope and no priest can procure salvation for another. And so the reformers believed this so strongly that every one of those aspects of the solas, though not organized in that form, pointed and protected the glory of God. See, for the reformers, theology, which is what we're talking about, was not a cold intellectual exercise, but rather it was the gateway to greater measures of God's glory. They would say, if they were here today, I believe, if you want to know God, if you want to glorify him in greater measures, you must know him through revelation, and that revelation is the doctrine of the scriptures. We're talking about defining God's glory. And may I say to us, as an application for this first point, that Christianity today has lost sight of its purpose. It is rare to find a Christian who is truly concerned with the glory of God. Understanding God's infinite worth will result, it must result, in worship and praise. Nobody can be confronted with the glory of God and go away the, the same way they came. Isaiah is an example of that. Here is a man who's pronounced woe, 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 five times in the chapter before chapter 6. And then he sees the glory of God and his response is, woe is, not them, woe is me. I see myself in the light of your glory, Isaiah says. And that's so true of us, but you know the reality, and this is true for myself, most of us do not want to see God's glory because it would strip us of all worldly pursuits. It would take away all the things we love so dearly in this life. And I find myself in that category. Sometimes I even say out loud in the study or while I'm walking, Lord, I know that if I pursue your glory, it's going to result in the stripping of my flesh. And sometimes I love myself too much to honor God as I should. Yet the apostles and the church fathers and the reformers and the Puritans, they had this insatiable desire to know his glory. It was their pursuit. It was their love. It was their passion in life. I want to know in greater measures the glory of God. Their lives were spent in its pursuit. But today, oh today, we are so distracted We are so concerned and consumed with temporal things. Would to God that we would say with Moses, honestly, show me. Show me your glory. Show me your person, your attributes, your majesty, your magnificence. And so to help us in this endeavor, the remainder of the message this morning is simply a synopsis of the glory of God, a summary of the glory of God as I see it in the pages of Scripture. So follow along because that was really my introduction, sort of. The second thing I would like you to see this morning is not just the definition of the glory of God, but now I want you to see that the glory of God existed before creation. The glory of God existed before creation. We've already said that God's essential or absolute glory requires no validation on the part of anything that he has made, but validation in and of himself. We've noted that. But I want to point out also that God's absolute glory existed long before creation. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. This is the real Lord's prayer. John chapter 17. And let me just read one particular verse here. You can fill in the context in your own time. In John 17 and verse 5, the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prays and says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory that I had before... The world existed. The essential and absolute glory long before Adam and Eve, angels, the realms of heavenly and spiritual things were created. God had glory. And it existed in the perfect union of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit long before the world began. You know what I love about this truth? This truth that just excites my heart so much is that this reality... Puts to rest the self-centered notion that God somehow needed us in order to be glorified. That puts this to rest. You see, God's glory is not dependent upon you and I. He was glorified before our birth and he will be glorified in all eternity. Here's what I see happening in today's evangelical Christianity in some ways. Many Christians today operate as though their presence fulfills some great hole in the character of God, without which he would be lonely and would crave our attention. It's as though God has some man-sized gap in his life and he so desperately needed to fill it. And so he created us in order that we would give him glory and he would feel good about himself. This theology is absurd. It is full of pride and makes the center of everything man. Whereas the center of everything is God. And God needs none of us. None of us. The glory of God existed before creation. Thirdly, I would like you to see the glory of God expressed in creation. God's power, creativity, magnificence, and sovereignty is seen in all that he created. Even though nature and creation now groans under the weight of sin, according to Romans chapter 8, we see the fingerprints of God's divine power in all that he created. Turn with me to Psalm 19, if you would. Psalm 19, let's see how God's glory is expressed in creation. Psalm 19, I'm sure you're familiar with this this portion of scripture, beginning in verse 1. David, as he ponders the sky above, writes this song, The heavens declare the glory of God. Of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day he pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. I want you to go to a portion that I discovered. I've read it many times, I'm sure. But a portion I discovered in this particular study. Job chapter 12. Just the book before. Job chapter 12. Beginning in verse 7. I love this Job's answer to his three friends. But in it, we have such great theology. Job 12 and verse seven. But ask the beasts and they will teach you the heaven are the birds of the heavens and they will tell you or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you and the fish of the sea will declare to you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. When you look, when you ponder, when you survey the revelation of God in creation, it has to produce in the Christian glory towards God. We could read Psalm 8. We won't for time's sake. We could read Romans 1 verses 19 through 23 where his invisible attributes are seen in creation. The glory of God expressed in creation. Creation is what we call God's general revelation to all mankind. It is glorious, but it is also overlooked and unappreciated. Take note of what I'm about to read. John Piper I think explains this better than anything I've read before on this particular subject. He says, If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a streetlight. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. That is so true. So what shall be our response to the glory of God expressed in creation? Take note of a book everybody should read. Steve DeWitt writes a book that is called Eyes Wide Open, Enjoying God in Everything. Here is how he describes this, and it is glorious. Creation speaks to us every day, all the time, constantly shouting truths about spiritual reality. Did you hear it this morning as you got up? Did you feel any truth about God this morning as you took a hot shower? Did you taste any truth as you delighted in your morning coffee? Did you hear any divine reality as you heard a bird singing? Did you see any truth as you saw the blue of the sky? What have you actually felt, tasted, touched, seen and heard today? The whole earth is filled with his glory. Every day creation shouts to us, God is glorious, God is creator, God is provider, God is love, God is there. Everywhere I look, everywhere I feel, hear, smell and taste transmits the beauty of God through the beauty of creation. He is the beauty behind all beauty. If we lived like that for just a day, just a day how our life would be transformed. And so we see the glory of God expressed in creation. Number four. The glory of God expressed in redemption. In redemption. The glory of God expressed in redemption. This fourth point was the primary concern of the Protestant reformers. The gospel had been so veiled and so altered by the religion of the day that God's glory in his redemptive plan of salvation was almost entirely obscured. God's glory, his power. His majesty, His sovereignty, His kindness, His love, His grace, His mercy, and His truth is most clearly seen in His work of salvation. If you would know God, and if you would attribute the glory due to His name, you must see Him as revealed in the message of redemption. Take note of this. Creation will bring us to a place of wonder. The cross will bring us to a place of worship. Wonder is wonderful, but worship is worth-ship. God delights not in our wonder, but in our worship. He does not simply want us to be in awe. He wants us to adore. To perceive is pleasant, but to praise is purposeful. I want us to look for a few moments at the glory of God in redemption as seen in Scripture. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I read this to us earlier before I sung that special item of music, but we need to read it again. And you need to follow the words if you're able as I read this. For this is an incredible passage in the Scripture. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also and we also, we might say, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Just a page or two back. And verse 14. I, uh, I wish we still had one particular word here from the King James included. We see here in verse 14, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In the King James it says, But far be it from me to glory in anything other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that word glory in. It has a different connotation to boast. And the point here is that the glory of God is expressed in redemption, in salvation, in the conversion of sinners. Sinners. The jewel of God's glory is the gospel. The highest aim, take note, of God's salvation was not your rescue. Let me say that again. The highest aim, the greatest goal of God's salvation was not that you would be rescued, but that he would be glorified. We make salvation so much about us and we are the recipients of this great grace that is immeasurable and free. But the reality is that is not the exact purpose of God. The purpose of God in in salvation and conversion of sinners is his own glory. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way. The deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men. But the glory of God and then the saving of men, because that was for the glory of God. You see the difference? God's redemptive plan of salvation is the greatest expression of his glory. We must not cheapen. We must not undervalue or misappropriate the gospel of God. For to do so is to rob him of the glory and praise that is due to his name. In reflecting on the glory of the gospel and the work of Christ in salvation, Martin Luther writes, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. So true. So fourthly, the the glory of God expressed in redemption. Fifthly, second last, I'll give you an insight into that. We're nearly there. Number five, the glory of God is the message of the redeemed. The glory of God is the message of the redeemed. In other words, the glory of God is to be the life song of every Christian. We have to turn. We have to. Psalm 96, please, if you would. I'm deciding whether we need to skip a few, but we can't. Not these ones. Psalm 96. Psalm 96, beginning in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous works among all the peoples. Flip over just a little bit further to Psalm 107. Beginning in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Go to verse 20 through to verse 22. He sent out his word and he healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. We need to understand this, church, Christians, our entire occupation in this life is not what you do for work. It is the proclamation of God's glory. Let the redeemed say so. Tell of his wondrous deeds Tell the nations, let the nations be glad because of the testimony of God's glory as revealed in creation and as revealed in redemption. The personal message that I have taken in to my heart and soul and am now telling you. The glory of God is the message of the redeemed. So much more could be said, but I need to move on to our final point for this morning The glory of God existed before creation. The glory of God expressed in creation. The glory of God expressed in redemption. The glory of God is the message of the redeemed. And finally, the apex, the summit. The glory of God is the theme of eternity. The glory of God is the theme of eternity. This final point transports us from this life into the next. You say, there's a lot of talk about heaven. What is heaven? What is this place that the Bible talks about? Well, in my mind, as I see it in the scriptures, heaven is simply the unrestrained realisation of God's glory. It's not about... The crystal river. It's not about the street of gold. It's not about all these other dimensions to heaven, which are wonderful and they are simply aspects of God's glory as seen on display. But ultimately, heaven is simply the unrestrained realization of the glory of God. We will see it. Finally, it will be before our eyes and it will be on our lips. Moses will no longer be hidden in the cleft of the rock. Perceiving only the back of God. There he and we shall see the full, awesome, majestic, unveiled glory of God. And no longer shall sin distract us. The rotting flesh that once prohibited our full and faithful worship stripped from us we will see him as he is the devil and his armies of darkness will reign no more for the king of glory is seated on the throne all forms of evil and wickedness will be confined to hell and all that remains is the glory of God and to illustrate this point we need to turn to Revelation And chapter 4 and chapter 5 and probably the rest of the book, but we won't today. Revelation and chapter 4. And even the language of John here is not able to adequately give us a full picture of all that occurred here. But in Revelation chapter 4, we have this recorded for us. After this, John says, I looked. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with gold and crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 8. The theme of eternity for the Christian is the glory of God. Horatius Bonar, who lived from 1808 to 1889, was a tremendous poet. Listen to the description of the life to come as we close. Angel voices sweetly singing. Echoes through the blue dome ringing, news of wondrous gladness bringing. Ah, tis heaven at last. Now beneath us all the grieving, all the wounded spirits heaving, all the woe of hope's deceiving. Ah, tis heaven at last. Sin forever left behind us. Earthly visions cease to bind us. Fleshly fetters cease to blind us. Ah, tis heaven at last. On the jasper threshold standing, like a pilgrim safely landing, see the strange bright scene expanding. Ah, tis heaven at last. What a city, what a glory, far beyond the brightest story. Of the ages old and hoary, ah, tis heaven at last. Softest voices silver pealing, fresh fragrance, freshest fragrance spirit-healing, happy hymns around us stealing, ah, tis heaven at last. Gone the vanity and folly, gone the dark and melancholy, come the joyous and the holy, ah, tis heaven at last. Not a broken blossom yonder, not a link can snap asunder. Stayed the tempest, sheathed the thunder, ah, tis heaven at last. Not a teardrop ever falleth, not a pleasure ever palleth. Song to song forever calleth, ah, tis heaven at last. Christ himself the living splendor, Christ the sunlight mild and tender, Praises to the Lamb we render. Ah, tis heaven at last. Now at length the veil is rendered. Now the pilgrimage is ended. And the saints their thrones ascended. Ah, tis heaven at last. Broken deaths dread bands that bound us. Life and victory around us. Christ the King himself hath crowned us. Ah, tis heaven. At last. Church, we conclude this series on the five solas of the Reformation with a verse that was precious to every one of them. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us. But to your name give glory. Psalm 115 verse 1. Solely Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. Heavenly Father, we have spent a month, countless hours in both the preparation and the proclamation of these truths. And what a note to finish on. feel like i would be more than happy to enter heaven at this very moment to know that the glory of god was seen and heard for us today in some measure is more than enough for me in my ministry to these my people And Lord, we do not know whether you will tarry. We do not know how long our lives shall last. But this we know, the chief end of man is the glory of God and his enjoyment of him forever. The reformers knew it. The apostle knew it. The writers of Holy Writ knew it. Lord, I fear that many perhaps even here, but certainly in contemporary Christianity, know very little, understand a minuscule amount of the importance of your glory. We shall spend an eternity sharing and singing and praising your redemptive plan of salvation, your power and your majesty And yet it would seem that in this life we are so distracted, so busy in other endeavours and pursuits. Lord, free us from ourselves, free us from our worldliness and our laziness, that we might pursue wholeheartedly your glory and tell it to the nations, that they too would experience and understand the infinite worth of our God. Thank you for all of the help and enablement and aid that you have given myself and Lucas this month as we have sought to proclaim your word. We know that we fall short in every aspect, but we're thankful that your spirit is the one who does that. And I pray he would continue to cement and consolidate these truths in our hearts that we might not forget them quickly. That we would see the importance of the scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone and all for the glory of God alone. Thank you. Thank you. And we want to sing this final song from the depths of our heart. What a privilege it is to bow the knee in Jesus name. Amen.